Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the policies, events and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And I'm Susie Dennison, Senior Director at ECFR. And together we're moderating this year's summer series. In previous years, we've done the Clash of Orders, the Age of Unpeace and the End of the World series. And this year we're looking at the relationship between the UK and the EU, what we're calling the Great Reset. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the potential opportunities and challenges when it comes to Europe-UK cooperation on climate and energy. And we've got a very special guest for this episode, Nick Butler. Nick spent almost 30 years at BP before uh, serving as a senior policy advisor to Gordon Brown when he was prime minister. He was also one of the founders of the Centre for European Reform think tank, and he currently serves as energy policy advisor at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge and at the Faraday Institution, which is the entity established by the British government to develop energy storage technology. Nick, thanks so much for joining. A pleasure. Why don't we start with the sort of big picture question about, you know, we're in a world which is going through profound changes in terms of our um, energy consumption, the technologies that we're using to to generate energy and climate change uh, and the, the carbon transition is is reshaping uh, lots of aspects of our of our lives and, and of government policy from from transport uh, to economic policy industrial strategy and it's also something which has got big international dimensions in this kind of changing world um how does the the EU UK relationship sit are there things which Europeans want from the UK? Are there things which the UK wants from, from the EU? Can you tell us a bit both about what's going on in the world and, and maybe situate the, the relationship between the UK and the EU within that kind of wider framework? Okay, let, let's start with the wider world. I think that it's now more than 25 years since Kyoto, where the real discussion on climate change began. And the regrettable thing is that the pattern of energy use across the world has not changed. Emissions are about 50% higher than they were in 1997. Uh, We're beginning to see the real serious impact of climate change, which in my view is not this gradual move towards um, two degrees or 1.5 degrees, but it's much more about extreme weather. And you see around the world over the last two weeks, floods, drought, uh, heat waves of uh, unprecedented scale in all parts of the world. And I think we and uh, people in Europe have a very strong common interest in working together. I'm pleased that the mood seems now to be to reestablish relationships with Europe. And I think that we should do that on the basis of what is needed. Now, Europe accounts for only about 10% of global emissions, and that figure is falling because all the growth in population and prosperity is outside Europe. So I think what Europe's role in the world, and I think Britain could have a great potential part in this, is to find the solutions which can offer low-cost, low-carbon answers to the countries which are still dependent on coal uh, and which contribute to this global picture where 
80% of all energy use every day is still hydrocarbons. We've got to get away from that. Uh, the evidence of the damage is very clear. And I think we have a responsibility. And I think we also have in Europe and in Britain together the skills and the research capacity to find some of the answers. Now, we could try doing it on our own. There are some great universities and research institutes here, but I think it would be much better if the effort was pooled uh, on a European scale. And I think that that would be a much better approach to climate policy than just trying to get uh, Europe and Britain to net zero. I mean, you can, can I... have a, a clean Europe in a dirty world is not an achievement. And, and, and on that point about um, the, um, the the benefits in um, in not going it alone on this, thinking kind of specifically about the UK and the European Union in terms of um, their approach on on climate. So the fight against climate change is identified as one of the essential elements of the um, trade and cooperation agreement um, between the two parties. Um, but uh, sort of beyond the um, the that, that sort of technical level. Do you see the um, approaches which the UK and the EU, which both in their own ways sort of um, self-identify as, as, as climate leaders, do you see that as complementary? Do you see us as sort of moving in the same direction in terms of the tools that we're, we're using at the moment on this? Uh, I do. And I think uh, they're not working. Uh, and we're not moving away from hydrocarbons. Even Germany, which is seen as a strong environmental leader, is still 80% dependent on oil, gas and coal for its daily energy needs. So is the UK. We don't have much coal, but we use that much oil and gas. Uh, we have these objectives. We have targets. Uh, we had under Boris Johnson, when he was prime minister, a 10-point plan to get to 78% reduction in emissions by, I think it was 2035. It's very little substance behind uh, that sort of uh, promise. Uh, we're, we're the world leader in promises. And I think that uh, what we need is to look at the two, three, four major technologies where the UK and Europe, ideally working together, could make a real difference, not just in Europe, but across the world, and particularly for these countries where, because of population growth, you know, we're taught for half an hour, population, world population in that half hour rises by about 5,000 people. That's uh, 10,000 an hour, almost a quarter of a million every day. That plus the spread of prosperity is what is keeping emissions going up because people need energy as they come out of poverty, as they start to trade with each other. And we need to find a solution that they can afford to adapt to. And and I, I hope we can do that. I think... Uh, I was at the Tony Blair conference yesterday, and he was talking about the importance and the potential of technology to solve some of our problems. And this is one area where I absolutely think uh, technology is going to be the answer. So at the moment, Britain's not even part of Horizon 2020, uh, let alone sort of thinking about building these kind of big um, uh 
technology partnerships. There's a lot of money coming on stream through the the IRA in the US and through um, various schemes out of out of uh, the European Commission. I mean, what is the the uh, what scope does this take? This cooperation on technology that you're envisaging. Well, I, I, let me just pick up on the IRA out of the US. I think what you now see is a big international competition between the US, the EU, and China to build the industries which are going to supply the transition, all the elements of uh, uh, that we will need. And I think the UK, if it stays outside pattern of European cooperation, has almost no industrial base in low carbon. I think if you look at the wind farms, Somebody was quoting the other day, they went to the largest wind, I think it was Keir Starmer actually, uh, said that he went to the largest wind farm in the UK, which is just outside Glasgow, and looked at the turbines. All the turbines were built in Indonesia and brought in by ship. Now, we will have no place in that industrial competition, which the Chinese and the Americans are now leading on, unless we get our act together. I think there are a number of areas where we have potential. I think batteries and energy storage is certainly one. And we are, I believe, ahead of Europe on that. I think it's very interesting to look at what's happening in direct air capture, uh, taking carbon out of the air. It's not economic yet, but the challenge, and I think things such as the firms that Bill Gates has invested in and and building in the US, we should have a voice in that. And I think there are great skills in the UK and in Europe. And then I think we're beginning to look, and this is encouraging, but there's a lot more to be done at advanced grid technology, where the Chinese are the leaders, but we could get up to the same level. I mean, there's a project to bring power from Morocco, from a huge solar plant, in Morocco by long distance line into the UK and into Europe. And I think that would be low cost, low carbon, and the technology is there. And we can keep advancing that technology and we can electrify more and more of the UK economy and make a real difference. And I just think uh, we have limited resources. Our national finances are not in great shape. if we could work across Europe, there are great scientists, there are great institutes, and uh, I see it as a real contribution to a global challenge. What does getting our act together? Does it mean investing more money? Does it mean having regulatory alignment so that the UK can can benefit from economies of scale? Um, is it about um, trying to link ourselves up with with uh, emissions trading schemes and and with the carbon border adjustment mechanisms? I mean, what 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 all that all that, so Mark, uh, and realizing that uh, Europe is a big market for anything that we can collectively produce, and I think, for instance, there should be a, a grid right across Europe. I think that would be a great contribution to energy security. It was one of the reasons why in the early days the cutoff of supplies from Russia had such an impact, because there isn't yet proper grid. So there's lots that Europe has to do, and I think uh, we should be part of it wherever we can. And uh, that means to me joint research institutes on a big scale, public and private funding, so 
the state is not going to do all this. I think it should leverage in private capital and um, and then project from there Europe into the world. I mean, your institute does a lot of great work on Europe's place in the world, and I think this is a place where Europe has the potential <laughs> to be a leader. Can I just um, stay on that point um, and, and ask whether you think that there are kind of specific blockages, um, uh, particularly to business business uh, to bi- business um, cooperation between the the UK and, um, uh, and and in EU countries at the moment? The reason I ask is we have a project at ECFR called the Energy Deals Tracker, which is essentially looking at the deals which. Um, EU uh, countries, businesses within those countries, um, largely are doing with third countries. And um, we've tracked, uh, uh, I think, over 100 new deals since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Only one of those is with the UK. um, And it's it's private sector led one um, between uh, Vulcan Energy Resources in the UK and an an Italian company, NL Green Power. And it's looking, um, uh, it's it's right in the area that you're talking about, looking at um, renewable energy, potential development of lithium batteries and so on. But I was interested that there was just this one example Example of of the private sector cooperation between the UK and, and Europe. I mean, I, is 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 this about um, the sort of the hostile environment around cooperation at, at the moment um, that we're seeing much more of this going on, um, uh, looking beyond the UK from an EU perspective, um, or, or do you do you think that there are regulatory or um, other issues that that are? Well, uh, I think the Horizon Program is an example of something that. Uh, it's not, of course, all devoted to energy at all, uh, but it, that, it's just that sort of basic cooperation has gone. Now, there are attempts to get it back. I hope they work. I can't understand why they're taking so long. Uh, I think that should be a model for how we do this. And within that sort of framework, I would put more money in, leveraging more private money around some specific goals. At the moment, the relationship is pretty bad, uh, and there's still I still don't think Northern Ireland is totally settled. I'm sure know more about that deal than I do. It doesn't feel settled. Uh, I think there is a sense that uh, this government certainly is reluctant to be seen by the right-wing press, particularly, and by some people on that side of politics, as giving up on Brexit. And I think there's still a very naive view that we can have Great Britain, you know, back to uh, imperial power across the world on our own. I just think that's nonsense. I mean, I think we should have links with all sorts of people. And Europe is the obvious place to start because there is an academic and a commercial base and an engineering base and great firms to take this outside, but I'd have links with the US and other people as well. I don't think um, we should uh, be an island in this. We're not an island in terms of climate change Mm. or energy security, and we need to get ourselves in a much more realistic position about Britain's real potential in the world rather than 
thinking we're going back to the 19th century. Since you mentioned the US, um, to get your take on, because there's there's quite a live debate within, um, among EU member states, certainly at the moment, about whether the, um, the broader response to the model which the US has brought forward with the Inflation Redu- Reduction Act should be to emulate that approach through a much more um, subsidy-based uh, industrial policy, or whether um, our role um, as, as Europe um, and I think the UK is, is is part of that picture. Should be about sort of standing up for um, uh, for, for tre- free trade in this environment and respect for WTO rules uh, and 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 so on. What's what's your sense on um, how um, how we could and should position ourselves on that in a way which is complementary with the um, with the urgency of the climate agenda as you set it out? I think the mood at the moment in the US. Uh, and the EU is rather protectionist. Uh, and that is understandable, but I don't, it's counterproductive. I think that will increase the costs of the energy transition. I don't think Europe needs to be producing all the things that could be better produced elsewhere. And I don't think it should be putting up trade barriers in, in this area. We need to focus the attention and our resources on making the scientific advances that can really change the game. And those science doesn't really recognize national boundaries. And I think if we think that research can all be done here, however good Cambridge and Imperial are, we're wrong. And I think that we should open up the cooperation. I, that would be, I'm, I'm in favor of free trade and free knowledge. So we talked a lot at the beginning about climate. Um, the big story over the last 18 months has been about energy security as, as well as climate in the, the wake of, of the war in Ukraine and the uh, um, chaos that that has produced as a result of uh, the need of European countries to, to, to find new sources of hydrocarbons to replace what they were getting from, from Russia beforehand. Can you, for people who are not as deeply steeped in European energy policy as you are. Just talk a bit about what uh, the European energy market looks like, how interlinked is the UK into that energy market, whether through gas pipelines, through electricity grids and other kinds of things. Um, how much is is the UK a, a European country when it comes to energy, either as a supplier or uh, as a consumer? Well, I think the uh, what's happened in Ukraine has reminded us that we are part of the world market and part of a regional market. So prices go up across the world and they come through to consumers in, in this country. And Europe went through a process last year, actually quite successfully, of moving away from Russian supplies, particularly of gas, and in finding other supplies from around the world. And we were part of that. And we have interconnectors which supply power, particularly electricity, but also gas from different parts of Europe. Uh, so we are we are absolutely not immune. We're not an island when it comes to what people pay for their energy and where it comes from. We rely on imports of both oil and gas. The North Sea is running down now. Um, 
and therefore we we just can't step away from it. I think um, we should be somewhat more integrated. My view is that there should be a power grid right across the North Sea, so that there are multiple inputs from Norway, hydro from Scotland of of wind from Europe of electricity produced, including from French nuclear. And uh, there is a proposal, which I think is very interesting, um, to build that grid and to manage it using the best available technology so that you can draw supplies from different areas when they're needed. And that reduces the problem of intermittency, which occurs when you rely on wind and solar, which are not producing power all the time. I think that you could have that grid and if you could have alongside it storage capacity so that you don't have to use all the power in the instant that it's produced, uh, that would be a great advance for energy security. And so there's a lot that we can do and uh, we should recognize uh, the links that we have. It's, It's like all the trade we have, our national wealth depends on trade uh, across all sectors, and it depends on where the world market goes, what you and I are paying for our energy bills. But coming back to your earlier points about um, sort of pushing back against protectionism and the fact that Europe doesn't need to produce everything, there there is an argument that as we um, transition to cleaner, to more reliance on cleaner sources of energy, um, we're opening ourselves up to uh, potential vulnerabilities in terms of access to raw materials and the supplies needed for the tech for, for these new forms. Is is there a sort of an, a narrative that um, that combines? this energy security um, agenda, which, as Mark said, has, has been the most kind of prevalent um, framing uh, for the discussion over the last um, two years, um, with uh, the, uh, the the energy transition and um, and and a way of um, in sort of using this as a, a springboard in a way to, 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 to drive that further and, and faster than we're doing at the moment. Yes, I think it, it's shown what we do need to get to the transition. And we do need the, some of those critical raw materials, and they are clearly very much concentrated in China at the moment. I think that we should think about energy security as being about diversity of supply. Some of it can come internally, but we should have alternative sources, different countries around the world. I think Europe is right on that policy. I think the, the UK is, is echoing it. Uh, and that will reduce, it won't eliminate, but it will reduce the power of any producer to dominate the market at any particular time. And we should take from what's happened with Russia that if, as Europe was 40, 50% dependent on Russian gas, if that's suddenly cut off for any reason, and there could, of course, be conflicts with China, uh, uh, that uh, you need to know how to backfill, how, how to compensate or replace that supply. If, we, if you become too dependent on any one supplier, you're running a risk. And so if we try and sort of draw these different strands together, like basically if you were kind of advising a new government after the next elections um, that's trying to, to find a way of, of recasting the relationship and looking for a much more kind of ambitious relationship, um, what do you think the 
British offer to the EU would be in terms of their energy security, technology, climate, etc. What what are the are there specific things which either EU countries or the EU institutions want out of the UK, which they don't have at the moment? And then and vice versa. What do you think beyond sort of Horizon 2020? What, what the uh, the UK should be asking for from either the EU institutions of Brussels or through bilateral or minilateral links with with different member states. Right. Well, I, I don't think we're going to go back in anytime soon. Uh, I don't think there's people are beginning to regret Brexit, and I think they'll regret it more over time unless we get this right. I think we should be putting on the table ideas around things on which we basically agree on things that where you, current European policy matches UK policy, particularly if, if as you say, there's a new government. Uh, I don't think we should be scared of Europe as a partner. I don't think that we should think that by building links, we are denying Brexit or trying to instantly reverse it. That's not but I don't think that's possible. I hope the relationship will be rebuilt through substance. And in this area, I think we should be proposing, and I think it's a mutual interest. So it's not just trading point. It's, it's actually something that if you, on the theory of mutual advantage, if you work together, you can do more than you could by working on your own. And I think that's around energy storage. It's around these technologies I've talked about. Uh, and we, I'd like to see three or four research institutes done on a cooperative basis uh, across Europe. And I'd like to see uh, the creation of the pro proper proposal and a, a development of a North Sea power grid. And I think that those would be really substantive projects uh, which could be done over time, which would rebuild trust. And I think, you know, I think you've written about it. The trust has been lost. So now it's become a, a really rather difficult tra micro-transactional relationship. And we need to, I think, look at where we start by actually agreeing already where the goals are common. And I think this applies not just to energy, but things like migration and economic growth and so on. That would be my approach to Europe. Okay. I think that probably rounds off uh, all we got time for in this um, episode, apart from our very last thing, which I hope we talked to you about before, Nick, but we always end with our bookshelf segment. What is on your bookshelf at the moment? It's called The Long Journey of English. It's a geographical history of the English language by a man called Peter Trudgill. And it's very well written. And it's the story of how English began I'm only about 20% of the way into it, but it, it began in the eastern steppes, Ukraine and Kazakhstan, and travelled from there. Uh, it, did, it did not begin in England. And uh, it's a fascinating story of migration, how languages work together and how different different patterns of 
the use of language occurs in different countries. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for, for that. We'll put a link up to publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please do head to whatever platform you use to download it and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it would be great if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it helps bring other people to the podcast. <laughs> But for now, from Nick Butler, Susie Dennison, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Tiffany Sade, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Saratz. <laughs>